You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at The Washington Post. It's been 64 days since Russia invaded Ukraine, but this week marked a pivot, well, pivot point. As Defense Secretary Austin said, the goal of the alliance is to weaken Russia so that it can't do something like this again, meaning invade Ukraine. Uh, and maybe other nations. And President Biden announced another $33 billion aid package. Here to bring us up to speed on what's happening and what's to come is Dan Lamoth. I'm sorry, Dan Lamoth. I'm sorry, Dan, who covers the Pentagon and military here at the Washington Post. Dan, welcome to First Look. Good morning. Good morning. So earlier this week, U.S. defense officials participated in a day-long um, meeting with more than 40 nations to urge others to provide more weaponry to Ukraine. Defense Secretary Austin said that the brief that the briefings, quote, laid out clearly why the coming weeks will be so crucial for Ukraine. What is the latest intel about what Ukraine might be facing in the coming weeks? What we're anticipating is, is a war that, that, that looks a lot different than what we've seen over the last two months. Uh, Russia has largely pivoted to the eastern portion of the country, the Donbass region in particular, which tends to be much more flat, much more wide open. Uh, the expectation is we're going to see a lot more artillery uh, shooting back and forth at each other. Uh, this is going to be a, a mobile uh, war, a lot of vehicles moving around uh, and not as tightly packed in. You know, I think we're all familiar with those images of, you know, Ukrainians shooting missiles in relatively tight quarters out of forests and things like that uh, in the suburbs of Kiev earlier, earlier in the war. Uh, it's, it's a different feel in the East, and, and, I, and I think the weapons and, and the tactics very well might change. Um, General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as you know, said, quote, time is not on Ukraine's side. So what will happen if Ukraine does not receive the weaponry the U.S. delegation uh, pressed for in its meeting? I think, I think there's a major sense, sense of urgency here. Uh, Russia is sort of slowly making its way into the Donbass region. Where, uh, what we heard yesterday at the Pentagon was basically a few or several kilometers per day. Uh, so they're making advances, but they're slow. So the time is really now, uh, from the perspective of much of the West, uh, to get these additional systems, uh, artillery in particular, but, but other things as well, more vehicles, uh, other long-range fires, things that uh, might be able to use to keep Russia at bay. I'm, I'm curious by the, the choice uh, of the word slow. Is the Pentagon, are, are Pentagon officials surprised by how slowly Russia is moving its troops into eastern Ukraine, uh, Ukraine into the Donbass? I, I don't think they're that surprised. I think what, they're, what they would actually say is they're seeing an adjustment. Uh, I, I think the, the, the larger surprise at the outset of this war was the way that Russia made these sort of thunder runs or rapid, uh, you know, insertions of troops uh, into areas without all the support you would anticipate. They didn't have logistics behind them. The airstrikes weren't carried out in uh, the numbers you would anticipate. Uh, so they're being a lot more careful now. Uh, so you're, you're seeing them, what they're really trying to do is not outrun their own logistics. Uh, and, and that requires being a lot more patient. And so a lot of the talk um, in the early part of Russia's war on Ukraine, there was a lot of talk about these, these uh, problems of command and control, yes, of logistics. Uh, does the Pentagon think that those problems, that Russia has solved those problems now that it has focused its attention 
on the East with it, the tactical advantage that the East provides Russia in terms of the flat terrain, flat open terrain? The expectation is that they've made improvements. Uh, solved, I think, is probably still a stretch at that point. I think we're probably in a wait-and-see mode uh, before we could say anything that, that that's sort of that uh, that much of a change. Mm -hmm. talk, talk about the change in rhetoric, in tone and words that we're hearing from um, U.S. officials, both on the military side, but also on the diplomatic side. It's significant. Uh, and I think it's it's probably a couple things. I think one scenario here is that this likely becomes a, a long and drawn out slog, uh, sadly, uh, in the East. This is not something that the, you know, the, exp the, the most likely scenario that most people express who are tracking the intelligence and tracking, you know, possible outcomes here is sort of a long and protracted conflict in the East uh, that is larger than the, the already years long conflict in the East. Uh, so. To, to, I think, counter that and also to, I think, uh, rally support, you're hearing this shift in rhetoric from the, from the West, uh, trying to make sure that I stay on this conflict and, and trying to make sure that support, uh, billions of dollars, many weapons, many countries involved, uh, that's going to take a concerted effort to, to kind of message that in a way where people are still encouraged and willing to participate. Yeah, I mean, I know from my own conversations with people in the foreign policy establishment who are focusing on the on the war, Russia's war on Ukraine, that is the message that they are well that they were imparting is that this is going to be months, if not years, and the concern that the attention the attention span won't be like it is down the road. Let's talk about the nuclear saber rattling that seems to be coming out of Russia with more frequency. Is the long-standing policy of nuclear deterrence crumbling? How worried? is the Pentagon that Russia will actually use a nuclear weapon? Right now, I think they're, they're, they're messaging very publicly, and, and President Biden did this yesterday as well, that um, sort of this rhetoric is irresponsible. Uh, you know, it, it's a problem. It's something that an, a, a modern, responsible nuclear nation would not do. Uh, but, but I think the other pieces of the puzzle that, that would draw major alarm uh, are not quite there yet. Uh, you know. The, the expectation is that the United States is watching for, you know, uh, forces moving around that, that would specifically have that nuclear mission. And, and everything I'm hearing is that they haven't seen that kind of thing. They're not seeing launchers move. They're not seeing kinds of things that would be very serious. Uh, another piece to the puzzle last week, uh, Russia launched a missile in a test. And initially it was seen, uh, you know, the reaction on social media and otherwise was sort of a, oh my, you know, they're doing this very serious thing. Pentagon, Pentagon came out in short order later and said, hey, they actually notified us. They're, they're actually still adhering to the treaty uh, that, that would guide this. So th there's kind of a, a weird mix of messages there. It, it's very, um, I'm glad you pointed that out because I do think a lot of people, okay, uh, myself included, have in our heads that you know, it's just a matter of flipping a switch. Uh, for Russia to launch a nuclear strike. But there are a whole host of moves that need to be made that the West would be able to see via satellite and, and other, by other means long before, relatively speaking, long before a, a nuclear strike could happen. And on that point, w th there is reporting about um, some sort of bat phone between the United States and Russia, between, I believe, Secretary Austin and his counterpart uh, in Moscow. Do we know if that 
if that phone has been used? Yeah, I've I've had that question. There's there's several different lines of communication. Uh, Secretary Austin can talk to his counterpart notionally. Uh, General Milley uh, has a long-standing relationship that the really that whoever the chairman is at the Pentagon has had for years now uh, with General Gerasimov, uh, who's a you know the most significant military leader in Russia in uniform. Uh, everything I'm hearing is that the, that there are tests of these lines. There's a there's a willingness to at least say, hey, the phone's still working. Uh, but there's not substantive conversations at this point. So the, the hope would be that if something, you know, that kind of crisis emerges, there's the ability to get on the horn. There's the ability to talk. Whether or not the Russians pick up is a secondary question that we don't really know right now. Right. And Dan, in the less about 90 seconds that we have left on a scale of one to 10, how worried is the Pentagon that... Um, Russian President Putin will expand the current theater of the war by striking the Baltic states or Moldova? I think there's a long and short-term answer to that. The short-term answer is I don't think they, they believe that he has the ability to do that in a serious way. I suppose we could see long, long-range strikes or something like that, but, but his forces are pretty well bogged down. Uh, but then there's the long-term question of this, and I think that, that explains some of the rhetoric you're hearing from Secretary Austin and others, which is, there needs to be some adjustment. There needs to be some ability to sort of gird those areas, you know, Moldova, the Baltics, uh, Poland to some extent, areas that could be struck at a later time, a year or two or five years from now. Dan Lamoth, the, Pen the, the Washington Post, Pentagon and military correspondent, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. All right, we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post correspondents Megan Markle and Jennifer Rubin. Welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that, <laughs> that um, uh, feedback. It sounds like cartoon characters are repeating everything we say. But Jennifer, let's, let's talk about Ukraine. Um, you wrote this week about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's comment where he said, quote, you want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the thing, the kind of things that it has done in invading Ukraine. Why is this so noteworthy? I actually think that the reaction was a little over the top. Um, of course, we want to weaken Russia. Um, that's the whole point. We want to help Ukraine defend itself. Um, that means degrading substantially Russian forces. Uh, that means um, providing intelligence that helps them anticipate where Russia is going. So the whole point of this is um, to degrade, to defeat Russia. Um, and I don't think um, it's any news to say um, either that, as uh, Putin said, well, this is a proxy war. Of course it's a proxy war. That's the whole point. Um, we are helping to arm Ukraine because they are on the front lines of democracy. Um, they are helping um, to defend themselves, but they're also there to defend the international order. And I don't think um, what Austin said was all that uh, noteworthy. Um, perhaps it's noteworthy that he's saying that directly. Um, but again, I think that is part of the effort, um, as Dan was saying, your prior guest, um, to really make clear that we are in this for the long haul, that we are committed to Ukraine, that their goals are our goals. Um, and that's going to be the goal for the United States and for the Allies, to stick with this um, through the weeks, months, and perhaps years that come. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I put money on years. You know, Jennifer, I'm just wondering, are you, are some in the West just a little too concerned um, or afraid of agitating Putin? So the folks who are reacting to Secretary Austin's comments or the folks who were reacting to, who reacted to President Biden's comments in Poland when he said this guy shouldn't remain in power, are we, are we, Putting too much, um, having too much concern for the tender feelings of the dictator of Moscow. Yeah, I think it is a little silly. What, we're going to make him cranky after all of this? Um, listen, he's a cold-blooded killer. He is a war criminal. Um, I don't think his feelings are going to be hurt. I think the only thing that we have to worry about is that, of course, Russian paranoia, historically so, has imagined that the West is going to invade and circle, destroy Russia. Um, and to the extent to which he really gets this into his head or is able to propagandize that and stir up um, Russian um, feelings of uh, being uh, under siege. We probably don't want that to happen because that's when you get into questions of use of WMDs. But I don't think we're there right now. Um, this is just Putin um, playing to whatever audience he thinks he still has. Woe is me, look at the West, um, big bad America. Um, it's, uh, I think, um, a little bit much, a little bit too, uh, too sweet um, for the situation. So I don't think we have to worry about um, getting him um, miffed um, or cranky. Right. Well, well, given what you just said there, it makes me wonder then, um, don't the attacks that have been happening uh, on Russian soil, particularly within the last few days, do you think that that play gives Putin or plays into Putin's aggrieved nature about the West and might give him uh, a, a rallying point for Russians to say, hey, look, they're, they're attacking us. Never mind that, you know, Russia invaded and they're responding. Right. I think these are strikes that are very close to the border. They're on um, military depots and other legitimate military targets. So I don't think we have seen, um, in that sense, an escalation. No one's bombing Moscow. No one's invading um, like Napoleon's forces. So I don't think it raises uh, rises to that level. However, I think it does speak to something that um, President Biden did early on that he was criticized for, but maybe in retrospect, um, he was very wise to do. If you remember, um, they wanted uh, American planes um, at one point, the Ukrainians um, taking off from oh, a right. NATO uh, base. And the president said, ah, I think that's a little bit much. Um, and I think that's what he was focused on, that at what point does this become, um, do we make ourselves a target? And from the very get-go, he said, we're not going to have American forces there. We're not going to have a, quote, no-fly zone, because no-fly zone means you're um, ready to strike uh, down um, enemy aircraft, and you have to be prepared to strike down enemy aircraft. So I think there is a bit of a balance. Um, so long as U.S. slash NATO troops are not involved in those border skirmishes. I don't think we've changed um, the equation very much. And I think right now, um, Putin is rather desperate to show that he really can crush little Ukraine. Um, and that's why you see this massive artillery operation um, at a slow crawl um, begin mm -hmm. to form. You know, um, Jennifer, I just want to announce to you and everyone watching, this is just going to be a conversation between me and Jennifer. Unfortunately, Megan McArdle's connection 
Um, we could we couldn't hold it, and that explains some of the maybe Alvin and the chipmunk sound you might have been hearing <laughs> in the background at the start of the conversation. So, uh, Jen, like I said, it's just you and me, kid. So President Biden announces, we know, another $33 billion in aid for Ukraine, and there's no danger that Congress won't approve um, this package. However, my question is, how many more times can the president go back to Congress before its resolve to aid Ukraine cracks? Well, I think that is the $64,000 question. Right now, um, despite a certain segment of the Republican Party, there is very strong bipartisan support for Ukraine. And I think um, Putin's war crimes and brutality have only increased the West's resolve. So I think less problematic um, are the arms sales and are the humanitarian support. I think where you're going to see some weakening and some concern is over energy prices. Um, the Germans have just announced that they too are going to end um, import of German fuel, of uh, Russian fuel. That's going to create um, problems for them. So I think what we need to be concerned about is public um, angst um, and anxiety about rising fuel prices, in turn Congress's concern, and that there would be some pressure um, to either bring this to an early close or to somehow ease up on the uh, energy sanctions. That, I think, is a more problematic political problem for the administration. Um, want to switch gears? Want to talk about Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter? Uh, here's my here, here's my number one question before we get into um, your comments and your columns. Am I right to be concerned about Twitter, which is this enormous platform in the United States, but also globally, is going to become a, a privately held company? That is a very interesting question. Um, these have almost become like utilities, like the phone company, um, or uh, like, um, you know, in the old days, the telegraph. And there is some concern that if you put something like this in complete private hands, that is, there's no shareholders, there are no outside boards of uh, directors on the board, um, that this becomes sort of the um, plaything of a Bond-like villain. And um, he would somehow misuse it, abuse it, use it to influence elections, to target individuals. Um, and that, I think, um, is a legitimate concern. And it goes back to an even larger problem, which is we really do not have any rules of the road when it comes to um, the internet. Um, the EU just this past week announced an enormous new uh, regime of um, regulations, of requirements, transparency. Um, and the online world is going to have to live with that. And interestingly enough, Elon Musk is going to have to live with that if he wants to operate in Europe. So in some sense, we may get the benefit of that, but we are not ourselves driving this conversation. And um, there has been pressure on Congress for some time now to act um, either to um, simply require disclosure um, of what these algorithms actually do, or to at least require that they live up to their promises of removing hate speech and removing um, dangerous um, disinformation. So I would hope, um, although this is probably fanciful, um, that Congress would take this um, as 
um, further um, reason to begin to seriously legislate. Um, you know, for a, a moment there, the right and the left were unified in their dislike of um, the internet companies. Um, the right thought that they were all out to get conservatives and were knocking them off of Twitter and other platforms, although um, the far right actually dominates in many of these respects. And the left doesn't like um, monopoly power, doesn't like um, the refusal to regulate um, hate speech. Um, I think for a moment, at least, we had some bipartisan agreement. I wonder now, however, that Musk, who is becoming some kind of folk hero to the right, um, is um, going to slow the enthusiasm, dampen the enthusiasm on the right for any kind of regulation. Now that they have their guy in charge of one of the major online platforms, they may be less um, enthusiastic about regulation. Um, but I really would hope, and the president said he's in favor of this, it's just fallen to the bottom of the priority list, um, that the United States, we begin to think seriously about what kind of rules of the road we have. The mm -hmm. social media companies enjoy something that the Washington Post, that other traditional media outlets do not, and that is exemption from liability. They can put anything up there and not be sued for defamation right. or for false light on all of those um, torts. And uh, there's been a lot of question. Do they deserve it? Should that be conditional? Um, why is it that that one sort of media gets that kind of protection? And so I think these are some of the questions that are going to continue to be had. And of course, we never really know what Elon Musk is going to do. Um, is he really going to go through with this? Um, the Washington Post on our front page today has a discussion of that. Um, there may be reasons why he eventually drops out even now. Um, so mm. we're going to have to really watch and see this guy. Um, he's um, mercurial, to put it uh, mildly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer. Um... <laughs> So uh, Elon Musk said this week, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. Okay, I, I, the, the, the first part is true. The second part is, um, yeah, it has become the town square. But I'm just wondering if Elon Musk is wildly underestimating what Twitter can do to democracy. Yeah, or he doesn't really care, um, uh, which is, I think, more to the point. Um, the reason why this kind of raised concerns is in a constitutional legal sense, Twitter is not governed by the First Amendment. Um, Twitter is a private company, um, whether it was owned by stockholders or it's owned by one person, and they have a free um, and absolute right to put up what they want or not put up what they want. And in the past, um, virtually every online uh, company, with the exception of things like Parler and maybe Donald Trump's um, new outfit, um, have taken the position that not everything should go up. They don't want to put up um, scenes of crimes in progress. They don't want to put up terrorist threats. They don't want to put up um, gruesome material. Um, and during the election, for a brief moment there, um, they were taking down information that was um, conveying disinformation about the vote. Um, they've tried to take down some information that's been um, disadvantageous in the fight against COVID. So there has been this notion that, yes, it is a medium where people get to talk about whatever they want and advance um, whatever views they um, 
like, but that these companies don't want to be seen um, as promoting crime, as promoting death. Um, and I think Elon Musk underestimates the degree to which the marketplace is going to require him to moderate. If you're a uh, advertiser, for example, do you want to be on a platform in which side by side with your product, there is a video of a crime in progress or side by side with you, um, there is um, enormous um, you know, gushers of hate speech. That may not work for him on a financial basis. It may not work because advertisers don't like it. It may not work because individual consumers don't like it. Um, and of course, now he has to deal with the European regulation mm -hmm. um, whole uh, system. So I think he may find out that there's more need to regulate and moderate um, than he might have imagined. And I think we forget that Elon Musk, um, like many billionaires, um, thinks that he knows everything about everything. Um, and this is really very different for him. He created PayPal, mm -hmm. he created a car company, created a space company. Um, but to some extent, this is a bit new for him. And he's going to have to find someone, first of all, to run the company. Um, I don't right. imagine that he's going to be doing the day-to-day -day business. So he's not going to have, I think, um, the sort of intimate fingertip control that he might imagine right. or that his yeah. critics might imagine. Jennifer, real fast, because we've got about maybe 90 seconds left, um, and I want to get your your thoughts, because you've written about this as well, Vice President Harris testing positive for COVID, and you wrote um, about how her, her diagnosis, quote, can help shift how we live with it. Real fast, how so? It is not a death sentence anymore. We don't have to live in um, fear that a vice president or another high official is going to um, be um, knocked out of office because of it. We have very effective vaccines. We have very effective um, boosters. We have um, viral uh, therapies, um, antiviral therapies. And I think we need to focus on using all of those, making those widely available so that COVID, although it can be serious if you have certain ailments or if you um, are not vaccinated, for the average person who is vaccinated, who is boosted, they can get on with their lives. And if they do contract it, they may get sick, but they're not gonna get hospitalized. And I think this move from the pandemic fear of death to a serious but very manageable health issue is one that we need to do. And having gone through it herself, I think she's the perfect person to begin to explain this to the American people. Um, you know, as someone, as, as a person of a certain age who is now uh, not only vaxxed, but now double boosted, um, <laughs> yes. you know, I, I, am, Me too. I am, yeah, I am thrilled to know that uh, all these shots are meaning that if I do, you know, knock on wood, you, well, if I do get COVID, which I haven't had, knock on wood, that I will just, my, my symptoms will be mild. If my reading of the clock is right, Jennifer, for once, <laughs> we are out of time. Jennifer Rubin, thank you very much, as always, for coming to First Look. We got to go. Have a good weekend. You too, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.